The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that they may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves, according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat, down, sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as, he, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Well, I hope you know that when we planned out our study of the book of Exodus probably six months ago, we had absolutely no idea that the Wednesday of the week that we would come to this particular passage of Scripture uh, what would happen in our county would happen in our county, although I'll tell you, uh, I started thinking about it on Thursday, and I thought, you know, it is at least kind of curious that we've come to a passage of Scripture in the Bible, in this book of Exodus, in which a cry goes up in a certain land over the loss of certain children, because the cry has gone up in Broward County over the loss of some precious kids and some precious adults who, by everyone's account, guys, behaved amazingly and heroically. And we are so thankful for them. But I'll tell you, you know, as we come to this study now of that story in the Bible in Exodus, you need to remember that there are some pretty significant differences between that story and the one that we're living in presently. 
In other words, God is up to something really unique in that particular story, and so there's a lot of crossover that actually isn't legitimate between their story and our story. But there are some things that in our story we can call out of their story and learn from. Like the fact that when the Bible comes to us and says that life is short, it ain't lying. I will tell you whether you live 14 years or whether you live 114 years, when you lay that time span down next to eternity, what is it, if not short, that when the Bible comes to us and says that life is precious, it's not lying either. Guys, the brevity of our time doesn't speak to its devalue, it speaks to its great value. Every moment actually matters because there's not that many of them. And that when the Bible comes to us and says things like, hey, you know what? You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, it speaks truthfully too. We think we know what tomorrow will bring, you know, and then we plan out our days in accordance with what we anticipate is going to happen. And the reality is, most of the time at least, we're mostly right, are we not? But here's the problem with being right most of the time. When you're right most of the time, you think that you're going to be right all of the time. And it's not so. And I think, too, this story that we're going to look at today speaks to this story that we're living in here in Broward County today, in that it comes to us and says, guys, you long for justice, a day will come when it will happen. You long for the madness to end, a day will come when the madness will end. And it will be a day of judgment, and it will be a day of deliverance, And that is actually, oddly, really good news. So anyway, as we've continued our study of the book of Exodus these last couple of weeks, what we've gotten into these last two weeks, and now again today, is this great contest that's happening between God, who is the king of the universe, the king of everyone, the king of everything, and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who holds God's people, the Israelites, in slavery there in the land of Egypt, where they have been enslaved now for 430 years. Try to imagine that. Just take that in. And what is God's purpose in this great contest? Well, it's to deliver his people. Clearly, that's one of his purposes. But that's not the only purpose, as we've seen. He's not just looking to deliver his people from slavery. Guys, he is looking to deliver the Egyptian people from slavery, which begs the question of what kind of slavery were they in? Because obviously, the Israelites were enslaved to them, so it has to be different. And the reality is, they were enslaved to the same kind of slavery that is mine and that is yours when we take our tiny little lives, and they're tiny, all of our precious moments, And we give them to the service and we give them to the worship and we invest them in the adulation of things that in the end we discover are actually nothing. I've lived my life in honor of nothing, in pursuit of nothing, in return for, well, nothing. My hope all this time has been in nothing. And that's been the Lord's message. And so plague after plague after plague after plague, he's been coming to the Israelites and he's been coming to the Egyptians and he's been coming to me and he's been coming to you and he's been saying, hey guys, can I save you some time? Because time really is of the essence. Like life matters and it's precious and I think we get that. Okay, so I'm going to save you some time. Here's the deal. I am the only God in all the earth, kind of a big statement, that is worth listening to. And the reason for that is because I am the only God in all the earth, period. 
In other words, all of these other gods are no God at all. They have no power. They don't see you. They don't hear you. They don't come to your aid. They don't help you. They don't touch you. They don't feel you. They don't feel for you. They don't love you. They don't even know you exist because they don't exist. And I know that sounds arrogant, and I've talked about that in the last couple of weeks, but, but it's not arrogant if it's true, and it certainly, if it's arrogant at all, which I don't think it is, it's not an arrogance that's unique to Christianity. Every God, every religion claims to have some exclusive hold on the truth, and every irreligious person who denies the existence of God and bemoans the existence of religion thinks that they're right about that. Well, what is that if not an exclusive claim to the truth? It's not arrogance, it's the nature of the conversation. And for nine plagues in a row that we've covered thus far, God has come and He has dismantled the nation of Israel and He has completely undone their mythology and revealed it to them for what it is. Your gods are nothing. And He has said to His people, and He has said to any Egyptian willing to listen, and He has said to us, let me save you some time, I and I alone, like I am the only God in all the earth, worth listening to because I'm, I'm the only God in all the earth. And here's what this God is going to say to us today through this final and climactic plague. He's going to come to us and say, first of all, I am a God who must, that's the key word, bring judgment. Does that give you the warm fuzzies? Don't miss that. I am a God who must bring judgment But, secondly, I am also a God who delivers from the judgment that I myself must bring. And here's how I do it. I deliver all those who put their faith in the blood of a lamb that is sacrificed in their place to pay the debt that they owe to me. That's it. So I wrote that down this week and I thought, man, that's going to go over well. Everybody's going to be jacked to hear that. So let's talk about it. Like you might be sitting there going, yeah, I don't know that I'm so excited about this message all of a sudden. I mean, I was a little bummed when we read the passage and now it's, you know, it's, I'm a God who must bring judgment. Tom, I don't have any problem with the lamb. I eat lamb. I dig leg of lamb. I love that there are vegetarians because then they're more lamb for me. I, like, <laughs> it's all good. I have no problem with the lamb piece. I don't like the judgment piece. I am a God who must bring judgment. Hey, you know, back off the caffeine, man. I mean, come on. Like, I don't like that. And I just want to stop and and challenge you graciously. So just give me a second. Okay, hear me out. I think you do like that. I think we want a God who is going to bring some dadgum judgment. I want that, you want that, every person on the planet wants that. Here's how I know that. Because every single one of us has a long list of people that we want God to bring judgment on. Don't we? There are historical figures on our list. Hitler, Stalin. I mean, that's just, those are softballs. Those are obvious. ISIS, terrorists, sex traffickers. Maybe even kids that walk in and shoot kids in school. Who's on your list? Because the list exists. Listen, you don't have a problem with judgment. You don't have a problem with God bringing judgment. Guys, we look at the world we live in. All of us do this. 
with outrage at the oppression and the injustice and the suffering and the sickness and the death and the madness. And we think to ourselves, good grief, what is going on here? God, how could God be just? How could God be righteous? How could God be holy? How could God be God, which is really what the question is, and not in the end, at the very least, bring all of this chaos to an end? And on that day, give to every evildoer what that evildoer justly deserves for each and every one of his or her evil deeds. Of course, he has to bring judgment. God must bring judgment. Not only do we not have a problem with it, we long for it to occur. We just don't want it to occur to us. We don't want it to happen to our friends. We don't want that for our family. We don't want it for people like us. And I want to say something about that for a second. Because I do think, generally speaking, that we are appreciably different Okay, then Hitler, then Stalin, then ISIS, then Boko Haram, then sex traffickers, then school shooters. We are different. Can we agree on that? But we're not perfect. Can we also agree on that? I mean, we are at least a little bit selfish every once in a while. Like, is there a married person alive who's not going to agree with that statement? Not without lying, so that makes you dishonest. (laughs) We're prideful. We're greedy. We worship the little gods of us. We manifest our differences and our wickedness, if you will, in ways that are very, very different from these people who are unhinged, frankly, and do evil, awful things tragic things. But we're not completely innocent. You know, as I thought about that this week, I thought, all right, so here's the deal. You and I don't even match. We don't even live up to our own moral standards, much less God's. Think about it this way. Like if you were born with a tape recorder around your neck, okay, and all that it ever recorded was everything that you had to say about how somebody else should live and what they should say and not say, where they should go or not do, what they should do or not do, what they should give or not give, and all of your critiques and and admonitions and ideas and standards for other people. And then at the end of your life, the tape recorder came off and they created a great big list of your moral standard for others and then your life had to be compared to it. How would you do? Because I think it would be death by a thousand cuts, man. Don't you? Oh, that person's so selfish. Like, that never happens to me. You know, they're so prideful. They're so dishonest. I can't believe they didn't tell the truth about that. Honey, how do you like my hair? Oh, it looks great, you know. (laughs) That's a white lie. That's helpful. (laughs) And it actually does look great. But... um, But here's the deal. We don't match our own standards. I'm going to give you God's standard, okay? And it's good that you're seated. Because this is a bummer, at least in the moment. Like, it's suffocating. You you hear his standard, and and like, you just want to turn into the three-year-old in Publix who just lays down on the floor because you're just defeated. You know, just drag me around by my hand. I mean, I'm just, I'm out, man. I am done with this. It's just, it's just, it doesn't even seem fair. God's standard for his creatures, you and I, 
is absolute perfection. Perfect worship of the Lord. Perfect service of the Lord. Perfect motivations and intentions of my heart that everything that I do might bring glory to the Lord. I am returning my life to you 100% of the time perfectly as an act of worship and it is my life's greatest joy. Which it would be, incidentally. What in the world is going on with that standard? Because I can't do that. I'm done before I even begin, and I'm just going to say it. So are you. Why is that the standard? Because our God is infinitely valuable. He is infinitely worthy. He is infinitely holy and wise and just and loving and so forth. His worth is so great that it demands nothing less than that. It's remarkable. And here's what happens every time you and I don't give him what he deserves, what we owe him. Let's use that language. And that's every day, isn't it? So every day I deny God what I owe him, rightly, what is right and just and good, and in robbing him of what he has owed, I accumulate a debt. Starts low, but it gets bigger. Day by day by day by day by day. Pretty soon you got to get on a ladder to see the top of this thing. Now you got to get on a plane to go over the top of this thing. I mean, it's like Mount Everest is nothing compared to this thing. Just think about that. And every single debt that every one of us will ever accumulate in any way, shape, or form in the entirety of our lives is going to necessarily have to be paid by someone. Sometimes it's your parents. You know, they come alongside and they bail you out once. Sometimes it's a friend who comes in and they bail you out. Eh, maybe more than once. I don't know. We'll see. Sometimes you pay the debt. Sometimes the bank says, you know what? We're going to forgive the loan. In other words, we're going to pay the debt by eating the cost. But debt gets paid. So God comes to us in this passage, this final climactic plague, which is terrifying. And he says to us, first of all, I am a God who must bring judgment. And don't kid yourself, you want it to come. You just don't want it to come on you. So, secondly, I am a God who delivers from the judgment that I myself must bring. And here's how I do it. I do it for those who put their faith in a substitute, in a perfect lamb who is sacrificed, gives its life to pay the debt that they owe to me. And God himself provides the lamb it kind of makes it hard to quarrel with. Well, Lord, I don't think you've done enough. No, I gave you the lamb even. Like, Well, look for the lamb. We pick up our study in Exodus 11, beginning in verse 1, where we read that the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So God is saying to Moses, like, listen, when Pharaoh says it's time to go, he's not going to give you a 30-day notice. Like, he's going to say it's time to go, like, yeah, two seconds ago. Like, get out now. And he is going to drive you and compel you immediately to leave the land. So you need to get ready for that moment. So God says, speak now in the hearing of the Israelite people that they ask every Israelite man of his Egyptian neighbor and every Israelite woman of her Egyptian neighbor for what? For silver and gold jewelry. He's saying, tell the people to go to the Egyptians and to ask them for their wealth. Because they're not going to be able to do that when Pharaoh says, time to go. 
So do it now. And then we read that the Lord gave the people of Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that when they asked for the wealth of the Egyptians, the Egyptians were like, hey, you need a bigger truck, man. Go, go rent another U-Haul. You know, come back because I have more to give you. That's remarkable. The Israelite God has destroyed their land. And the Israelites have favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. It's amazing what the Lord is able to do. Moreover, we read that the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. Well, I would think he would be. And in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the Egyptian slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle even. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these servants, all these servants of yours shall then come down to me, Moses says, and bow down to me saying, get out you and the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And then Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger and somebody texted me on Monday. They've been doing their personal worship in this passage. And all they said in the text was, God sure played hardball with Pharaoh this week. And he did. I think it's hard to read that story and not go, good grief, that seems harsh. That seems severe. That seems kind of, frankly, brutal. Wow, that, that's like almost cruel. Not, maybe not even almost. It just, it is. But I want to stop for a second and tell you that the Israelites would not agree with that. They would come running to the defense of their God and say, what are you talking about? Cruel, brutal, severe, harsh. Seriously? This is justice. It is a weighing of the scales. They would say to us, listen, whereas it is true that we are going to leave with a large portion of the wealth of Egypt, it is also true, and please don't forget it, that we've worked 430 years without one paycheck. Not one. And whereas, yes, it is true that the firstborn in all Egypt, even the cattle, is going to die, it is also true that we are the same generation of Israelites for whom every single male child in the generation in the infancy of Moses, not just the firstborn, every male child born of a Hebrew woman was ripped from the arms of his or her parents and thrown into the Nile River as a means of population control. Please don't talk to me about severe. The Lord is just in His weights. It's interesting how when we are the ones who are offended... We don't look at justice and call it harsh. We look at justice and we call it justice. And here's why. Because being offended, we understand uniquely that this person who has harmed us owes us something because we have been robbed of something. It's a debt. And every debt gets paid, in this case, either by the offender as we exact punishment, sometimes too much, in our efforts to sort of balance the scales, if you will, or that debt gets paid by us as we release the debt, as we pay the debt for them by paying the high cost of forgiveness. And forgiveness 
is a costly deal. But there is no forgiveness coming for Pharaoh. For after Moses leaves his chamber in anger, we read in verse 9 that then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And then here comes this language that we've heard again and again and again, nine times already. So here's the tenth. It says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And in other places, if you've been with us, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The end result being the same, which is what? Pharaoh rejects the God of Israel, the only God that there is. He hardens his heart against him, including against his grace. He's a God who must bring judgment. We all get that. But he delivers from judgment through the blood of a lamb. And Pharaoh will have no part of that. And so then the debt will be paid by him. That's the idea. Notwithstanding all that Pharaoh had seen thus far, he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And then we read in chapter 12, beginning in verse 21, it says, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select, here it is, lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb, and take a bunch of hyssop, this, this plant that grows out of walls and rocks, and it's covered with thousands of tiny little filaments, so it makes a good blotter, you know? It makes for a good brush. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel over your door and the two doorposts, but not on the threshold. This is not a blood to be trampled on. It's precious with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer, don't miss this, to enter your houses to strike you. You're like, well, wait a minute. I, I, I thought this was like judgment on the Egyptians, and it turns out that way. But God here is saying that everyone deserves it, doesn't he? And I think we have to agree the Israelites are appreciably different from the Egyptians. They're not Hitler. But they are a little selfish sometimes. Pride can run amok in their lives. They can lie about actually significant things. Problems, issues, brokenness, manifested not in a crazy unhinged way, thank the Lord, but manifested nonetheless. God's going, no, you don't understand. Everyone in the land of Egypt is guilty. But those who by faith believe my word and do what I say with the lamb. Well, the lamb has paid the price. I see the blood. So I pass over in judgment. That's the idea. So then in verse 28, we read that then the people of Israel went and they did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive, it was in the dungeon of Pharaoh and all the firstborn of the livestock as well. And then Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you 
and the people of Israel. And go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And then he says something that he has said differently in other places, but it's the same sentiment and it's just as insincere here. He says, bless me also. I don't think he even knows what that means. But I hope that you do know what that means. Because I think that that's exactly what God wants to do for us. For all of us who do not harden our heart against God. But instead realize that, all right, we're not crazy people. Got that, okay? But we are selfish. At the least. And God is holy. And we say, you know what, Lord? I believe your word and I need the the blood of the lamb. God is a God who must bring judgment. We're all in. Let's do that. Bring it, the chaos to an end. Please. How long, Lord, are you going to allow this? But spare me. God says, I've got a plan for that. He's Jesus Christ, my son. He's introduced to us by John the Baptist as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the infinitely valuable man For he is God in the flesh who laid down his infinitely valuable life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of all of us who humble ourselves and say, you know what? I need that. I need that. So I close with this. Number one, are you willing to acknowledge that you're guilty? And secondly, are you willing to accept the payment for your guilt that Jesus made for you on the cross because a day is coming when the chaos will end and we will so be thankful for it. And in that day, God will pass over, you see, all those whose debt has already been paid in full by the blood of Jesus. That's the emblem over your life if you're a Christian. It says paid in full. And that's a good emblem. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for these amazing, incredible stories. We thank You for how Your Spirit has written and preserved these treasures of the faith for us and how they instruct us of the One who would come in their day and yet, from our perspective, of the One who has come. The God who has not forsaken us to our guilt, but instead has entered into this world in which we live the man of sorrows who bore our sorrows and gave away all of his joys to do it so that we might know his joy. The one who came as the Lamb of God, that he might take upon himself my guilt and the guilt of all those who who bring it to him and wash it away entirely with his blood. And so then, Lord, if there's anyone here today who does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that you would give them the humility by which to simply cry out to him in faith and say, God, I, I too am guilty. I, you know, maybe I'm not unhinged, but, but I have a debt that needs to be paid. And I believe that Jesus came to pay this debt. And I claim by faith, it's as simple as painting your doorposts and lintel, the payment that he has made for me. Forgive me, make me new. Fill me with your spirit and repurpose the moments I have left because there aren't many and they are precious. Do this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.